Hey guys, this is uh, Bill Farrell. Uh, this is an ep- another episode of Rock Bottom to Recovery uh, podcast, uh, where we've created a platform to discuss all roads to recovery. Um, you know what? Uh, recovery, recovery is different from me. Would be different from from you. Um, and uh, actually, Shane's not here. Shane's uh, Scott is a, a friend of mine. He's part of this. Uh, Mike O'Sullivan. Also, we got Mike in. Um, you know, Mike had a scally cap. Um, I saw. You know, uh, Mike. Mike's a good addition. Shane's a good addition. They're they're younger, a little bit more handsome um, than me. A little eye candy for the audience and stuff. So, uh, but our guest today is uh, Scott Melissa, and Scott is the um, you are the outreach. I'm the uh, outreach director for uh, Granite Mountain Behavioral Health Care and Recover Strong in Prescott Valley. Arizona. Arizona. Though I'm located here in uh, good old Braintree, Massachusetts. And uh, today's uh, discussion is gambling. Problem gambling. Problem gambling. The goal is to keep the word problem out of the word gambling. Yeah. (laughs) Well, which is kind of cool. As you can see, the backdrop there is um, we have a little bit of a, we have some cards, we have some casinos, some of the places that uh, gambling could become a problem, correct? Correct. Yeah. So, um, you wanted to kind of get things warmed up, right, Scott? Did you have... Um, did I, I, I do. So um, to make it uh, a little bit more engaging and really get folks thinking, um, I want folks to start thinking, is gambling in your house uh, uh, how you normalize it, uh, how, you were, how you were raised? Is gambling a problem or is it a solution? And what I mean by that is for so many households and so many individuals, gambling has been normalized over uh, over the years of being raised. I mean, after all, it is the only addiction that tells you you're a winner. So, um, you know, for folks, you know, I share this information. My mom was a problem gambler. Um, she was just not in a position to financially hurt herself on fixed income because she was in a wheelchair and did not know how to use mobile devices. Um, but I would watch her religiously scratch scratch tickets, say the rosary, scratch tickets, the rosary, scratch it. And so I kind of grew up in this uh, Catholic uh, lottery house. But, um, you know, for her, it was this uh, false sense of, of hope. And gambling is one of the only few addictions that actually builds, actually the only addiction that builds hope. So to, in order to get the brain uh, moving and, and um Think of some questions that maybe you can ask me uh, or Bill after the show. We'll do a little warm-up. We're going to have Bill. In here, I have 10 cards, uh, and it's something that I've used. First, uh, my previous background is uh, working with the, so you can understand this, is working with the Massachusetts Council on Compulsive Gambling. Uh, Great group there, and there I was a director of uh, outreach and training for a number of years. And my responsibilities were working with uh, the Bureau of Substance Abuse Services and the Department of Public Health and making sure that the systems, because Massachusetts has one of the best state-driven systems in the country, uh, that those systems are gambling informed. And the Department of Public Health, uh, Victor Ortiz, the Director of Problem Gambling Services, uh, they take that very seriously. And so in, though we're in light of the opioid crisis, uh, I'm here today to really educate that when you talk about gambling, it should be in the same sentence as drugs, alcohol, and gambling because of that relationship. We're going to explore that relationship right here, right now with Bill. <coughs> so, Bill, what I'd like you to do is take these 10 cards. Um, now, Bill doesn't know the scenarios or the backgrounds of these cards. He hasn't seen these cards previously. I have not seen these cards. But Bill, in his thoughts, are going to raise... Uh, um, um, arrange these from highest risk of developing a gambling 
uh, addiction to Lois from what he knows just based on reading. And so I will give Bill a couple minutes. Do we want to show? So if you we want to uh, show the folks. All right. So if um, okay, so we're gonna um, so what I think would be the highest risk to lowest risk to of the lowest risk a gambling addiction. Okay. So let's see. In other oh. words, what activities are these people doing in these cards? Again, there's no wrong answer with this. It's just to get you thinking that for some, <clears throat> some of these scenarios could be attached to vulnerable populations. What's a vulnerable population? Um, my years of working extensively in the prison system, I, I really hate the term offender population, but uh, offender population, disenfranchised population, uh, homeless, unemployed, uh, older adult population. So these are the things that you would need to consider for some based on their activity level that could be putting them, uh, some of their activities at, in harm of developing or risk of developing a gambling disorder. Okay, so I'm going to start with... All right. What do you want me to lay them out, Scott? You, you lay them out, and then we'll go over them together. Are we going to drop one down, and then we'll talk about it, or do we just no, drop them all down I one you, after another? Yeah, okay. you give it the highest to the lowest. I'll stand up and maybe. So do I, um, do I need to uh, read it out? So like, just so you people are listening in. So we're on Podbean and iTunes. So if you're listening in, we also um, stream live from Facebook. So you could... Um, you could potentially go to our Facebook page, Rock Bottom to Recovery, and actually watch this video because we're streaming live. But uh, So the first one I'm going to put out is having a parent who has a gambling problem. Right, let's put that up there. Okay. That's number one. And, uh, folks, I'll read these aloud while Bill sorts them out uh, so you can be thinking at home. We have placing a $100 bet on the Kentucky Derby every year. A 10-year-old winning $50 on the first Scratch ticket ever given to him. Notice I emphasize first. Uh, participates in two fantasy football leagues. Playing bingo three to four times a week. Yeah. Um, teenagers getting together once a night for a poker night. Living 40 miles from a casino. That actually has gone up to 50 miles, but um, we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, playing nightly online on a free gambling website. And a middle-aged mom who plans Saturday getaways to play her favorite slot machine. All right. Music, please. Little Jeopardy music. Uh, let's see. Okay. All right. Uh, there you go. All right. And Starting from there. Here we go. So, <clears throat> number one... Living 40 miles from a casino. So number one would be the, so number one is what? They, number, that would be the number one. And again, without knowing the background of each situation, but overall, some of the highest risk of developing a gambling disorder would be living 40 miles or 50 miles from a casino. Wow. What you need to know in Massachusetts is that at some point, every man, woman, and child will live within 50 miles of a casino, right? So what happened in 2011? We passed, the legislation passed the Gambling uh, Act, right? Or the Gambling Bill Act, yeah. Um, and that allowed for uh, three casinos and a slot. Um, the casinos were supposed to open in succession. That didn't happen. So now we have Plain Ridge, soon to be Springfield, I think either uh, this summer or fall. Uh, and then Wynn and yep. what's happening there. So at some point, just about every man, woman, and child in Massachusetts will be reachable to a casino. 
Okay, so that's number one. So, so living within, you said 50 miles. It's actually 50 miles. Okay, so, the so a from the casino. So every, pretty much it, very soon, all of us will be. Could be, depending on our be. backgrounds and, um, you know, start thinking, well, what does he mean by background? Well, I mentioned uh, uh, vulnerable populations. What if I was unemployed? What if I was uh, in the prison system? Uh, what if um, uh, it is a, a, a if I'm uh, an older adult and I either retired and I'm looking for something to do, uh, or I am um, looking to buy that house I never gave my my child? Again, is it a uh, a problem or is it a solution? And I want you to keep revisiting that thought as we go over some of the exercises today and just some of the general discussions that we have. Yes. Um, number two playing bingo three to four times a week indicates a progression, potentially a tolerance increase. Associated risk is dependent on finances, <clears throat> time away from responsibility, money spent each time. So a um, couple situations in the past and in, in my previous line of work, uh, we have had helpline callers call in where um, two, two, two uh, situations where uh, a woman living in fixed income, uh, was uh, facing eviction because she was playing in $20 fixed uh, bingo games and uh, hasn't paid her rent in the past six months. Now, the housing authority um, had some leniency for su towards substance use disorder, uh, but not problem gambling. It did not recognize problem gambling. Um, and from what we know, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual in 2013, just from a, a general understanding without getting too deep into this, had moved um, gambling in the DSM-4, which was classified under impulse control disorder, to the behavioral addiction side. And so what that means is that if you were to go to uh, treatment uh, and see a therapist, they could bill directly for problem gambling. So here it is that um, we have the, the medical community caught up to problem gambling, but the housing authority was still in the dark, even though it was under the addictions category. Okay, so that is number two. As you say that, I just want to point out because I, I did a little research, Scott, oh, on gambling. Do time. Um, and what I the overview: uh, compulsive gambling, also called gambling disorder, is an uncontrollable urge to keep gambling despite the toll it takes on your life. But this, what I thought, was very interesting. Gambling can stimulate the brain's reward system, much like drugs or alcohol, which is exactly what you were just talking about. Right. Substance, um, substance abuse disorder. But so, um, so they did. They did recognize it now, or they. Great, great point, Bill. So to add to that, um, 2013 DSM-4 to DSM-5, one of the biggest uh, uh, differences is also that we've learned that in terms of the brain biology. Uh, gambling uh, utilizes the same neuro um, pathways uh, that mimics the same neuro pathways uh, system or reward system as substance use, uh, as well as other addictions. So this is why it could be a risky behavior for folks in recovery from substance use, never mind the relationship between problem gambling and other addictions, which we'll get into after this exercise. Um, and just overall, how dangerous it could be to pick up gambling. Um, because to a problem gambler, the anticipation of uh, the anticipation is equal to, uh, if not greater than the win. 
So it's the act of playing. And that is what releases the same neuropathway, sorry, uh, as uh, dopamine and serotonin. So if you have somebody who uh, is using um, opioids, for example, um, <clears throat> it could match the same high, or cocaine, I should say. It could match the same high. So it could be a very risky activity. Yeah, okay. So. That makes sense. All right. Um, sorry, guy, Bill. No, no, that's fine. Where, where are we at? What's the next one? Number three, a middle-aged mom who plans getaways to her favorite slot machine. So middle age, um, because again, maybe we're looking for an activity to do. Um, getaways implies escape, okay? Language you should hear at home. Uh, and favorite uh, indicates repetition <clears throat> and possible established routine. So Routine. Right. Routine, number, yes. that's number three. All right. Number four is a 10-year-old winning $50 on a first scratch ticket ever given to him or her. <clears throat> Which is illegal, isn't it? Well, yes. If you yes. get caught. Yes. Let's put that out there right now. Yes. Okay. Uh, and by the way, the Mass Council has uh, taken great efforts over the past uh, years in working with uh, the Mass Lottery uh, to ensure that those advertising, that advertising does not happen uh, anymore. But... Um, uh, age is an onset and is a risk factor, you know, for uh, 14 to 21. So general population is about 2% risk of, uh, or that has a gambling disorder. Um, that rate will increase to about 750,000 young adults between 14, ages 14 to 21. The oh. issue with the data is this is from what we know. Again, because gambling is so normalized, right. right? Is it a problem? Is it a solution? Uh, and because of that, we're never really truly going to get the data, right? Right, uh, and so that number I feel is is much much higher, uh, based on the availability to gambling, uh, why children gamble, uh, or youth gamble, and um, and the fact that it's been normalized in their household in some way. Right. Every day you turn on the TV, there's some form of gambling. Whether you go to Stop and Shop and they give you some form of raffle. Um, I grew up in a Catholic school system. We did raffles every year. Right. So, in fact, my first taste of gambling was St. Rocco's Feast in Long Island, 1979. I was six. I know uh, that I'm actually a little bit older than Mike. <laughs> um, and I used to run the numbers into the gambling tent for my uh, father to my uncle. And it was allowed because I was six. What harm could that do? But my brother, who's 15 years older, uh, at the time... Uh, making well, actually, he was old enough to go in, but uh, his friends that were around 16, 17, uh, still were not allowed in, but they let me in. And the, I remember just the how cool it was to be accepted, to be allowed in this cool adult environment. Right. Um, and so you flip baseball cards as a kid, and you know it seems like a harmless activity. In fact, there are many families who were actually fine with their children gambling in the basement because they're not. They're not doing drugs. Right. So, yeah. But um, <clears throat> as we continue, uh, next is having a parent who has a gambling problem, very similar to substance use. Uh, someone's risk of developing a problem increases when one or both parents are identified problem gamblers. Um, I personally have the next one a little bit higher, which is teenagers getting together once per month for poker night. This is a legal activity. I didn't... No, it was, but it would become illegal if the teens did not know each other outside of the poker nights or if the host was taking a cut. 
<laughs> right. Listen, wait, wait, right. Scott. That's right. pretty good. I like that. Yeah. They, as long as if they right. don't know each other, right. that's called a loophole. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. do you know him? I do know him. When I've, I've known him for the last 15 minutes. <laughs> so, yeah. that's good. Right. Uh, did you gamble? I did not. <laughs> All right. Come on in. Um, playing nightly uh, online on a free gambling website. The key word here is nightly. This can be considered risky for some. Uh, and someone might do well online and feel that they are skilled enough to play for real money. Um, Candy Crush, I mean, do you think that's a form of gambling? Well, I would think so. Would you say that the, ga- the um, uh, video gaming industry has taken and learned from the gaming industry in terms of how to uh, attract game users? Yeah. Absolutely. Of course. Everything you see in this casino from the second you walk in to the positioning of the machines to the the air, um, the control temperature is meant to maximize every ounce of revenue that could be made in that setting. So there's a lot of thought that goes into that. Oh, I wish my wife took the same ownership in cleaning the house. (laughs) Uh, We don't want to get involved with that right there. So. Next would be participates in two fantasy football leagues. Is it gambling? Is it skill? Is it luck? Is it legal? Is it illegal? Um, Then purchasing a lottery ticket every time you pump gas. It depends on how often you pump gas. For me, that would be almost every three days. But... And then last but not least, uh, placing a $100 bet on the Kentucky Derby every year. I don't even know if youth even know what horse racing is. I don't know. Do they, Dylan? I do. You do? You do. Do you know what the Kentucky Derby is? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> but you know what horse racing is. Yeah. How do you know that? Uh, a whole bunch of movies. Oh, there you go. Yeah. That's cool. So, um, in bouncing around a little bit and being on youth, um, why would youth gamble? Dylan, why, why would youth gamble? <clears throat> Dylan, Dylan didn't know he was going to get in on this, That's but okay. he's in on it now. Yes. <laughs> um, maybe for the money? Yep, maybe for the money. Would it, I'd say social, just even the social, maybe gathering. That's right, social. Yeah. Maybe they don't realize that it's potentially a problem and that it's a risk-free activity. Right. And so, you know, for youth and this risk-free activity, you know, one of the big ones that's been around for years is um, the dollar flip. Mm-hmm. And so you have two individuals and you let the dollar go and whatever it lands. <clears throat> and that's played in... Middle school all the way through college. And so um, kids absolutely can get hooked on playing that uh, and find a, you know, find a rewards system in playing. So when you look at children and, and how their brains develop, um, having that reward be conditioned towards that win, that usually will set the stage for uh, other reward-like activities. And so that's why it's a very dangerous uh, activity. Right. Um, but how come it's, uh, Scott, how come you, like, did, it's just, uh, obviously we do know it's so um, socially accepted because, like, you have Keno, you have Lottery, you have Bingo. I mean, the, the Bingo right up the street here pulls in huge money every Friday night. The parking lot is jammed. And and my kids went to that school, um, uh, St. Joe's, um, and, uh, you know, we had to work it. Yeah. Um, as part of the um, the kids going uh, to the school and trying to lessen their tuition, you'd have to go in, and you know, here you'd have to um, sell the pull tabs. Right. And I'll tell you, man, probably the meanest, nastiest 
um, people I've ever met sometimes. I was like, I, I'm like, you know, I'm a Marine. I grew up in the city. That was some scary stuff in there sometimes. And they used to smoke. And I just remember, the, like, uh, one of the pull tabs were Elvis's. They called them Elvis's. And they just did yell from all the Elvis. And they'd have a butt hanging from the, uh, <laughs> from the lip. And it'd be like, and if you went over, if like, somebody yelled Elvis and you gave uh, that tab to somebody else and they won, before you got over to her, oh, it was on. I called you first. And it's like, um, <clears throat> and I mean, and, and so like, bingo. And I mean, and there's people up there. They go up there every Friday night. They have their food. Uh, I'm not picking on people that play bingo and stuff. I'm just saying like, I, you know, as you're talking, these are the things that I'm thinking about. And I, every Friday night, like it became that routine for them. And yeah. I mean... It's, it can only be one winner, right? Well, that's right. And, in fact, most uh, folks, the odds of playing, they, they don't win. You know, um, in Massachusetts, we have one of the largest lottery systems in the world. Yeah. In the world, I think. And this, I could be off on this number, but pretty much has generated over five point. Oh, the council would kill me if I misquote this. 5.2 uh, gross billion. Uh, in revenue uh, for pure gambling when you think that because we outside of Plain Ridge we really don't we don't have a large gaming industry here in right. Massachusetts that's legal right so but it's uh, coming it's it's coming yeah it, it, it's coming with uh, with with Massachusetts in the same year New York couldn't you know leave us alone they said oh, hold on a second so if you guys are going to have three or four casinos we're going to open up three or four casinos and then if that wasn't enough uh foxwoods and uh, mohegan have been trying to partner with each other uh to open up uh smaller type of casinos to stay competitive over the border in springfield and not to lose revenue so when you think back maybe i don't know 20 30 years ago maybe there was 10 casinos from uh, maine all the way down to florida mm -hmm. now there could be upwards of uh 20 to 30, uh, maybe even more. Um, but hey, Oklahoma has about 17 to 21 by themselves. So. Wow. Now, how are those? Uh, are there, is there any uh, statistics or, uh, or um, information on those states and how the gambling has affected, like as far as positive and negative? Because, well, this is the, <clears throat> this is the problem is that many states will show that gambling has the, the casino uh, has no effect on minimal to no effect on crime. It's almost like dead even. Um, and the problem is with that, if we can, uh, you know, draw an example to this hidden, hidden addiction. Uh, so when we talk about 2% of the U.S. population has a gambling uh, a disorder or addictions with gambling, um, about a year ago, what, what about maybe a year and a half ago, do you remember Mike Phelps? The um, Olympic swimmer. Yeah. So... Do you remember what happened to Mike? <sighs> Remind me. I know he was smoking some marijuana. Yeah, you know what? Everyone says that first. Yeah, because uh, for whatever reason, that was a big thing that stuck out. Yeah, well, Mike got uh, pulled over for a DUI. Correct, Dylan. And um, it, You said that? And the officer didn't think to ask why Mike spent hours at a casino. And so the problem with the data is that we're not asking the right questions. Right. You know, what did Ray Rice do? What did he do? Well, he knocked his girlfriend out in a casino. Oh, I remember that. In the elevator. Right. And that yeah. wasn't the first incident inside Atlantic <clears throat> City. And where's the NFL with this? Yeah. Right? Gambling's not even considered. We know what happened with Mike Vick. Yep. Right? Yep. 
um, as we're jumping around, but having fun, you know, uh, the work I did in the, the prison system in Massachusetts, and by the way, um, Bill, Massachusetts has the largest prison system in the U.S., correct, in terms uh, of population? Uh, um, see, I, don't, I, don't, I, think I think so. I think so, but so, I'm not positive um, because I'm actually a county. Okay. So right. um, <clears throat> that could be definitely the DOC because they're, they're, they're Your everywhere. Your numbers are better. Yeah. So. But um, <clears throat> in Massachusetts, there are roughly, and this number has changed, but let's say uh, 11,000 folks, uh, 11,000 folks, um, Yes, 11,000 folks incarcerated in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's a rough estimate. And um, uh, Howard, Dr. Howard Schaefer out of Harvard has done some studies on this. But roughly, we would say roughly 30% of the um, offender population has addictions with gambling. So in Massachusetts, that would make what? That would make 3,000 folks would have a gambling disorder inside the system in which 80% of those folks are in the, have, some, have some form of linkage to substance use disorder. In an environment, uh, because through the trainings that we've done over the past uh, in, with the Department of Corrections through Maine uh, all the way uh, to um, uh, yeah, Carolina, mm -hmm. we asked Department of Corrections to finish this sentence. Uh, gambling is, and learning more about uh, where gambling sits in their reality, and they, they came up with these three words. These are the th three most popular words. It was pervasive, prohibited, and necessary. So let's think about that for a second. Necessary. In an environment where you can go from arrest to release, in which 80% of substance use uh, gambling is normalized as a form of entertainment. The DSM-5 has made its changes. Um, you get D tickets for fights and other right. things, usually money-related to some extent. Yeah. To, it could be. Yeah. And there's no recovery academy inside. There's no classification for gambling like there is substance use. And so, you know, here folks are trying to, to you know, come through the system and get better and... Unfortunately, uh, it's never mentioned. It's a, it's a hidden addiction. So when we talk about data uh, and that 2%, I, you know, I'm not picking on the Department of Corrections. In fact, they were one of our best partners at the Mass Council. Uh, they did some potentially groundbreaking uh, stuff with us. In fact, uh, they decided to administer the brief biosocial gambling screen to 500 offenders in, in uh, 2014. Uh, in which um, they were administered these three-question uh, uh, assessment. 20% had disclosed a gambling disorder. Now, they wanted just to see what would happen uh, for just general knowledge. It wasn't attached to an IRB. Um, but uh, from that, I mean, that's 20% had disclosed a gambling disorder when the inmates knew that some form of intervention programming could have come from that data. Wow. And they still disclosed that. So... Um, so general population at 2% uh, is, uh, that number is much, much, much higher. Oh, well, yeah. I, I, yeah. Sorry, I know it is. Um, <laughs> so um, so what, what, what's a gambling addiction look like? like so thank you for asking. So like if, if um, somebody out there, because I'm sure there's a lot of people, oh, I just buy a lottery ticket and that's all well and good. I go play bingo. That's all well and good. Um, 
you know, um, not everybody is going to be addicted, uh, but there are obviously there is because we're sitting here having this conversation. Um, so, I mean, what happens? People lose their houses, like well, first relationships get destroyed. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, <clears throat> first, what are, what are types of gambling? So, uh, what do you think? What are what are some types of gambling here in Massachusetts? Huh. Well, obviously the lottery. We got lottery. We have uh, football casino. We got football sports. Obviously, sports. so we have these forms of legal gambling. Yeah. What are forms of illegal gambling? So let's see. On the construction sites we used <laughs> yeah. to on Fridays, um, we'd go around buy a deck of cards, rip a card. Um, people would um, purchase say say ten dollars for the card or whatever. So you get half of the card. Um, the guy that was walking around got all the other halves. Throw in a hat, shake it all up. Pull the cat and whatever, uh, you know. They, I mean, you, you, some people would uh, leave work with, um, you know, five, six, seven hundred dollars. Sometimes even higher. Sure. And that was done almost every Friday. Um, hold that thought on the construction. And so, you know, we have um, we have dominoes, we have dice, we have uh, Captain Cool, uh, we have uh, the numbers. Uh, and where can you do these things? You can do them at uh, barbershops, beauty salons, bodegas. And so, you know, when we take a look at the consequences of gambling, uh, you mentioned working in the construction industry. Uh, construction, as we know, is a high-risk occupation. Uh, and as a high-risk occupation, it's high-risk, high-reward. And so there's an alarming uh, number last year in terms of folks working in the construction industry and, uh, and suicide. Uh, coincidentally, problem gambling has, uh, I believe, the highest rate of uh, attempted suicide over any addiction. And people usually don't know that. Mm -hmm. So when you take a look at, when we talked about risky activities, when we take a look at if you're working in a high-risk occupation with construction, perhaps, and you're gambling, you have two forms of uh, high-risk, high-reward. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that could be a, a devastating match right. for, for some. It could definitely be a devastating match. How come you think um, if, if the gambling is, is a high attempted suicide rate, how come it's the information's not out there? Is it because it would damage? <laughs> well, the, the casinos don't tell you why the windows don't open up in a casino. Yeah. That's attached to the hotel pretty much anywhere in the country. Um, you know, that unfortunately, that shooter in Vegas, he shot his way yeah. out, right? Yeah. And so, you know, they don't tell you those things. They don't tell you that they have contracted cleaners to come in and clean up. They don't, they don't tell you those things. Um, they don't tell you that, you know, <clears throat> working maybe in the stock market, maybe the, your rate of developing a gambling disorder is 10 times that of the, of the, of the, uh, uh, the national rate. Mm -hmm. um, or working in some t type of uh, first responder uh, uh, background or the military, where this number could be off, but uh, six to eight percent of the world's slot machines are on U.S. military bases. Well. So again, for some, based on their environment, it's not a risk-free activity and should and shouldn't be you know should be treated that way. It should be treated as a you know as a risky risky you know behavior. Um, I'm sorry. What else? Yes. Well, no. I think um, I'm. I'm glad you. We, we were talking. I was asking about the attempted suicide and why that that isn't out there and well, as much. But I think um, it's good. I think I, I have to just say, like, this is one of the reasons that we we started this podcast was because 
that information isn't out there. And the more that we can educate people, you know, the more they can, you, you can recognize these signs. Right. Um, uh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. And so if, if you're a family member and you notice that your loved one is um, spending more time. So Bill had asked earlier, how do we know? that someone has a gambling disorder. Um, I say, I always start with, you know, if it compromises your social, emotional, and financial well-being. And what I mean by that, as a father, if I'm missing my son's games, if I'm not showing up to events, um, if uh, I am withdrawn from my relationship and whereas before I wasn't, mm -hmm. and you know I don't have a substance use problem, right. um, you you know for a problem gambler if they continue to place larger bets right um, and hope that they recoup losses right. those sort of things uh, are, are things that you can ask you for more information you can visit uh, the Massachusetts Council on Compulsive Gambling uh, they'll actually have a on their website uh, they have a screening tool that anybody can use and get familiarized with those questions and you can also speak to a helpline. Um, uh, uh, coordinator uh, who will connect you with uh, resources in the area to talk about. Uh, so when when this uh, podcast is over, if you can give me that number so I can put it on the uh, sure. the description, just in sure. case people wanted to call or if they wanted to um, get a little more information, I think um, obviously very important, get people connected. And Sorry. did you have, no, no, yeah, go ahead. And so for, you know, for family members, um, you know, it always starts with a money-related conversation. So, you know, uh, let's say you're a, um, um, let's say you're a veteran. You're on fixed income. And that money ends up leaving week two of when you received it. And let's say you don't have an alcohol, uh, problems with alcohol uh, or other addictions. Where did that money go? I mean, you didn't eat it. Right. And so, again, what was normalized for some as a as a behavior and so again high risk occupation high rate of attempted suicide and then you have high risk to high reward and never mind the fact that you have those uh slot machines on u.s military bases again most most of society that we know doesn't have a gambling problem but for some because uh it has part of the reasons you you had asked uh you know about um suicide is part of the reasons why it leads to that is gambling has no saturation point. Right. And what I mean by that is, you know, you can lose $100,000 in a moment. You can sign over your house. You can sign over your car. Uh, you can owe a bookie. Um, you couldn't do that amount of drugs in a night. It's just not possible. Right. And so the guilt, the shame, because, you know, this is money. How dare you right right how dare you, you scumbag yeah you you lost our child's x y and z right. and usually folks because of no saturation point don't find out until it's too late right at that point check your credit cards folks because you just have four credit cards open up under you they're all maxed out you had no idea and by right. the way your house is being foreclosed on the college tuition is gone gone, gone. because it's very hard uh you know at that point to stop uh, and so folks really need comprehensive treatment. Right. Um, our, our facility is the only model in the country. Uh, 30 to 90 day dual diagnosis, problem gambling, substance use disorder. Uh, this, is, this, is this is Granite Mountain Behavioral Health Care right. in uh, Prescott Valley, which is northern Arizona. 
uh, is the only model in the country that has the dual diagnosis of uh, problem gambling and uh, substance use disorder. But, but you guys, uh, but you guys, um, you know, I was reading. I'm just going to grab my uh, my folder over here. Give me one second. Because yep. I was I was reading up on Granite Mountain, as you can see. Bam. Oh. And I just thought this was uh, great because um, with your particular um, facility, um, you guys, uh, it says fitness, recovery, substance use disorder, trauma therapy, dual diagnosis, as you were just talking about. Um, and um, can you talk a little bit about, so you guys definitely deal with gambling. We do. Yep. We deal with, we, we part, we've, uh, we have partnered with uh, Algamus, um uh, residential uh, rehab, uh, which is the only pure gambling rehab, residential rehab uh, program in the country. And so we've partnered and uh, really um, managed that model of care. Excuse me. In addition, Granite Mountain Behavioral Health Care uh, and Recover Strong um, also is a 30-90 day uh, dual diagnosis substance use disorder and evaluation treatment facility. Uh, and so the two, we are able to offer the only um, uh, dual diagnosis problem gambling and substance use. Uh, and generally, uh, substance use alone could, um, uh, could also uh, come with uh, mental health disorders right. as well. Right, so. because well, I think like you were just saying, just to gambling, the guilt, the shame, um, there's trauma there. Um, yes, we do. We do somatic release. We do. Yeah. We focus on trauma as well. And and so those are the, those are um, also, as we know, um, a big part of substance use disorder. That's right. So they they really do um, can fall in um, together, especially like you were saying earlier in the in the podcast, the uh, reward center in the brain, addiction. Um, from my understanding, um, the dopamine, the serotonin that gets released, it's, it's, all, it's all connected. It, it, the brain does the exact same thing. So um, it almost like uh, becomes a routine. Um, you're looking for that high. I was reading earlier, a compulsive gambler, it said, um, um, it was just, um, it was the urge um, just to, it, it's not even about the winning. It's about... Um, it's, it's the act of playing. Yeah. To a problem gambler, uh, money is the drug and gambling is how you get high. Right. And, and, um, but as I was looking at the, the Grand Amount Behavioral Health, um, center, um, I see you guys, you obviously recover strong. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's a whole exercise. Recover Strong was my connection with Granite Mountain Behavioral Health Care. Uh, and so you can understand my background, and you're probably wondering, how the heck does a guy from Braintree uh, get out to Arizona and start working uh, for a, you know, a residential type of treatment setting? And uh, I'd gone out uh, to Arizona back in November with a presentation on a pre- and post-model of care. Um, and uh, in that room was uh, my, which at the time I didn't know was uh, my new employer, Grand Amount Behavioral Healthcare, uh, and Recover Strong. And they had introduced me to um, uh, the Recover Strong model. And so I spent uh, uh, a week down there and uh, got myself um, really wrapped around 
what I was seeing. And what I was seeing, uh, the results for the folks uh, was not just incremental, it was transformational in, in talking to the clients at uh, Recover Strong. So it's the only model in the country that focuses um, on the neuroscience of physical movement in order to increase uptime to support neuroregeneration. And what I mean by that is that we have higher intensity physical movement to increase your heart rate. Mm -hmm. When that happens, uh, uh, like in a workout setting, yeah. uh, you increase cognition. Right. You increase cognition, you increase the likelihood of mood regulation and stabilization. Um, but what's really unique about this is that in a sensitive time, uh, folks are supporting each other right. in this social environment, in this social community, rather than themselves and being inactive, uh, where that sedentary environment could perpetuate for, or, and further the depression. So for some, this um, uh, workout piece uh, could be a game changer. This is a great alternative treatment option for some, especially for folks who've been, are, you know, chronic relapse, need something else, and just maybe localized treatment just doesn't, is not in a position to offer those services. And so this model is intentionally done in the morning before the other treatment modalities to set the stage of that heightened cognition and that uptime, okay, with the social setting into that environment. So those, uh, those treatment modalities are more effective. Mm -hmm. uh, they're more productive. And hope that you start developing in a sensitive time best practices for the individual, where for some, including myself 17 years ago, even brushing my teeth right. was a challenge. And so now you're waking up at 6 o'clock in the morning as a group and you're throwing down. You're doing, yeah. you're doing something similar to a CrossFit model. Right. And what's unique about the program is uh, Jason Turner, the CEO, uh, great guy, um, uh, discharged from the military uh, due to alcohol. He shares his story on YouTube. Uh, Tillman Scholar went to Arizona State University, developed Recover Strong. Um, he throws down. The house managers throw down. Uh, the drivers throw down, the clinicians, they all throw down in the workout. So, so basically people are leading by example. It's awesome. Yeah. It, I it's, like that. it's, you know, visit the YouTube channel so you can see the culture. Um, why a guy in Massachusetts is because for folks in Arizona in that setting, a good amount of our clients are actually from Massachusetts, New York, and New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And so we've noticed the patterns there, and um, you know, my presence here is to build awareness, build relationships. Uh, again, you know, there's no wrong door to recovery, but for some, this alternative treatment program uh, could be a game changer for folks. So, so when people work out, right, it releases dopamine. It does. And serotonin. Yes. Endorphins. And I don't know any other yeah. environment. In, in a treatment setting under 30, 90 day umbrella where other exercises can do that to at least match or come close to those same re uh, rewards as uh, dopamine and serotonin from substance use uh, would give you. Right. And so for some, that's why I, you know, you don't, it doesn't have to be for folks who've relapsed, uh, could be first timers, but um, that, that really builds motivation. Right. 
And, you know, that's why I said the results have been transformational and not incremental because of that exercise piece. If you, I don't, you know, so my background is I've been a personal trainer for over 20 years. Yeah. And I've, I've trained elite athletes for national level uh, competition in terms of physique, bodybuilding, figure, the, 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 the whole nine. Um, but if, if I take sedentary folks and started working out with them, Usually, I, very, I, I, it's very common by, you know, week three, week four, the smallest of changes within the workout, and f- folks feel amazing. Right. You know, they just do. They just do. So, um, you know. And I would think that the idea would be to begin to create those good um, routines, the good habits, whereas, say, the addiction right. had, had become a bad habit. So, Pushing out the bad habits and beginning to create the good habits. Is that right. kind of the idea behind the whole exercise? I mean, obviously, from a, the, the uh, physical side of it, it's, it's, you, you get a high, you know? I, um, I don't know if you noticed, Scott, but I kind of work out myself a little bit. I saw bit. that. Yeah. You're, you're the, the traps. <laughs> I, you know, I, uh... and, and, you know, one of the things, first thing in the morning, um, I get up at 4 a.m., Head into um, work and we work out. Um, I have a couple of guys that I work out with. We'll do some cardio. We do some boxing mitts, um, you know, and I'll tell you, it sets the tone for the entire day. Like I'm so much more conscious and alert. I feel so much better than um, the days that I don't work out. I don't feel sluggish. I don't feel, I just, I feel good. So for me, uh, I mean, it's like, it, it's become my habit. It's almost, it's become my routine. And it's a, I, I think it's a good one, but I mean, that could become an addiction too, I guess, at some point. But that's another podcast. So, <laughs> um, our core values are, are centered around community, uh, commitment, uh, and connection uh, in, in that setting. And so, what all of that really builds is, um, is confidence. Right. And so, that's really what is lacking so when you you know the treatment industry hasn't changed much over the past uh 30 to 40 years so we've been doing things the same way expecting the same results and somehow uh at least in my time in health and human services you know when did it become the responsibility of the patient to pass or fail you know when is it we we, we've come to put the responsibility on the individual um, and so, uh, Jason Turner, Jeff Young, uh, Ben Eisenberg, Rob Campbell, uh, they came together, uh, some, uh, from outside services who shared this passion, uh, with personal connection and really wanted to do something that was out of the box, something that they believed in and fitness, um, and one of the, one of the, the many inspirations, but, uh, that you can wrap yourself around is, um, uh, Spark by John Rady, uh, a, a clinical uh, Harvard professor uh, here in, uh, at Harvard who wrote the book Spark. That will give you some insight as to uh, increase cognition through exercise. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It, it is about better patterns. And so it's, but it's what happens next from those patterns. Right. Um, we, as a culture, that becomes part of the culture. Mm-hmm. And so you know, when we are really a, uh, a culture of openness and not behavior modification. And so setting the stage, those conversations become a little bit more warm. Right. And a again, more personal. when we're right. And in that 30 to 60 to 90 day environment, that is huge. Mm-hmm. That is huge. We don't get many opportunities 
to inspire in that time frame. Right. We, we just don't. And, and with the cost of treatment these days ranging from zero to 100,000, yeah. you know, you know. It, Let me ask you. So you have, um, I know you, you, you've sent a lot of uh, Massachusetts people out there. So when they, when they get back, because everybody has to come, you eventually have to come back to your environment. Do you have anything back here that would kind of keep people on track? Because, you know, sometimes people come back to, they're not coming back to a good place. So do you have anything uh, uh, as far as that goes? Like, where are we at with that? Yeah, so that's that's good. So one, there is um, our uh, transitional specialists uh, at Granite will help with an aftercare program that is local uh, in collaboration with myself. But I think it's more because uh, my work uh, being on the ground and developing the relationships is um, uh, with what what is around us here in Massachusetts that would complement mm-hmm. that environment of openness, that environment of uh, increasing cognition, increasing heart rate. So there's many options here in Massachusetts. One is one of our partners is uh, Bob Balfour. He does uh, runners, uh, runners in recovery. Okay. Uh, Bob, uh, you could uh, t- B A. Uh, s- forgive me, Bob. Uh, B A L F O U uh, R. But he'll be uh, on our website, GraniteMountainBHC.com, and also on our Facebook page. But runners in recovery is great. Uh, Bob gets up behind a lot of causes, um, and you should check him out. The other is um, Phoenix Multisport. Yes. They uh, have a very big CrossFit model, and I think you only have to be, and I should know this, I'm an actual member, uh, 48 hours in recovery. Yeah. Um, are they based out of uh, BMC? They are, but I think they just expanded into a new facility, and I believe they're actually um, uh, in a they're, they're down near in Lowell now. In Lowell, okay. They're I thought they were having something closer towards um, my facility, South Bay. Anything no, no, on? you're right about that, but they've also expanded and oh, got, okay. the old, uh, uh, got the Office of Community Corrections in Lowell. Oh, okay. So they're going to be doing something there. What's, um, what is, um, what's that guy's name? What, what's his name, the one that runs that? Um, Do you know him? I sent him a message. I know I sent him a message <laughs> because you, uh, and uh, I'm I, just drawing a blank. Um, yes. But. Dylan? <laughs> can, you, can you phone that now? <laughs> well, no, you know why? Because it's just funny because I know I was looking at the Recover Strong and everything, and, and somehow one, one, one thing led to another, and I happened to be talking to one of the um, directors at my facility, and, you know, an exercise was coming up, and she had mentioned um, um, like that, that uh, what is it, Phoenix? Phoenix Multisport. Yeah. So it's a it's a, like a CrossFit model there yeah. as well. Are they tied in with you guys? Are they? they, are they it's they just are something not. that they could come back, like somebody coming back could get involved with them. Right. Okay. But I think it's also you know it, it's a it's it's how can folks partner together to keep expanding. So, yes. Um, I agree. Granite Mountain Behavioral Healthcare and Recover Strong is a, uh, a Flor- like similar to a Florida-based model uh, with 12-step application as well as the uh, other treatment modalities, just to understand that. So coming back, you know, you have um, a combination of uh, one-on-one counseling and self-help. But, you know, it's where do we expand with that self-help and how do we get like-minded individuals to partner together to um, – 
really start surrounding the person with options right. that speak with them versus at them. And what I mean by that is uh, one of our, uh, obviously with AA, of course, but one of our other uh, large partners is Smart Recovery here in Massachusetts. Uh, Matthew Roberts has uh, at a New Way Center, New Way Center f- uh, for Recovery uh, in Quincy, Massachusetts. And so they understand the importance of exercise. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, when they can, they'll talk about, you know, the importance of exercise and, and how to handle, um, you know, anxiety, uh, mood regulation, uh, just by simply exercising. Right. Um, in fact, I run a volunteer workout program, uh, which is starting to take off out of uh, Northeast Health and Fitness uh, in, uh, Qu- uh, in Quincy, uh, 90 Quincy Ave. <clears throat> Every other Saturday, and the goal is that folks could uh, text me uh, if they're uh, in recovery and and they, they want to work out. No cost to them. They come. The groups are generally between five and seven folks that I can train, um, and we'll do some form of high intensity workout, very similar to what we would do uh, at Granite Mountain. And at the end of the workout, so my background is a former HR director, mm-hmm. uh, workforce development. Um, but with my exercise background, the, uh, my HR background, and health and human services background in, uh, in addiction, um, we take about five minutes per person at the end, and we create this pro-social environment where we can talk amongst each other about barriers to treatment, challenges in the workplace, uh, challenges to getting to self-help uh, and learn from each other. And so, you know, we have folks in the, um, you know, folks with the opioid-related ER visits, right? And But there's still a very large community that has, you know, uh, been sober for, you know, a few years. And in my opinion, you know, uh, we tend to get lost sometimes. Yeah, I agree. And what's out there for us? Who are the LinkedIn for us? Right. And how do we network with each other? Because we may not be here right now. And so these life challenges still come into play. And so who can I talk to who's going to understand the way I may think and feel and act? Right. So, Or even just as, um, as life goes on. I mean, just you get clean and sober, but you still have to deal with life on life's issues. And, and that can be, that can be trying sometimes. And without those personal connections, what I think is so great, like what you were just saying about meeting with people and working out, um, and then spending that five minutes at the end, what's so important about that is relationships begin to get built. And that is another person. If you were struggling or you just having a bad day, that's another person like that. They can call, they can call you and say, Hey, look at, you know, this is going on. I haven't, you know, I'm struggling. And, you know, I, I, I think that falls in right. What you were saying, we need to really network and really begin to reach out to all the groups around us and really begin to create that network. And, and it's funny you mentioned that because that's what we're trying to do. And um, um, so your voice matters. And I'm just going to read this just because you brought this up. And I just thought this was – this is what um, Holbrook Cares Coalition, which is what I belong to, um, Scott. Um, and this is what uh, – we, we've been doing this now for a few years. And as we're growing – um, this is where we're at today. So this is what um, Pam, Veda, uh, Pam Veda, who is the director of Holbrook Cares, this is what she put out. And I, I printed this today because I, I always started sharing it the last 
podcast and I want to share it at this podcast and it says to our, our community need to hear from you we are looking for individuals groups and organizations who are passionate about making a difference to those who are affected by the opiate epidemic we want to blanket the communities with awareness with PSAs public service announcements speaker presentations live feeds throughout social media we want to hear from those who are making a positive impact to those who uh, suffer or are affected by substance use disorder, and we want to bring that message to the public. We are looking for people to share their stories, the who's, the what's, the why's, and the how's. Many people, groups, and organizations from all over the state and country have been working tirelessly um, trying to come together to make an impact on this opiate crisis, and many have been created, whether it is to bring light to research data, help change policies and laws to save lives, to increase prevention efforts, to comfort, support, and bring awareness, to feed, to close. The list goes on. Exercise. Um, there is still so many unaware of the overwhelming number of deaths along with the number of people affected, such as parents, siblings, friends, family members, co-workers, neighbors, and children by this ongoing opiate epidemic. If you know, um, if you or someone you know would be interested in bringing awareness to the work um, you and your organization is doing, please contact Hober Cares, which you can find on Facebook. Send us a message. Send us an email. I'm going to put this up there. But that speaks to, again, getting as, um, as many of these organization groups such as yourself um, into one place and begin to build off of that. Um, another thing I'll tell you is that this was – I saw this today on the message board through the Hobart Care. Since January 1st of this year, we have lost 14,790 people to the substance abuse disorder. So in 85 days, 174 people a day equals 14,790 people. That's just from January. You know, that's how many we've lost. And so I'm sure come the end of the year, um, we'll probably beat last year's, which I, if I remember correctly, is just over 66,000 people. 66,000 people. That's intense. Um, and I've, I've told everybody that's Gillette Soviet Stadium holds like 6,000, um, I think 800 seats. So it's, a, it's like a stadium of people. And it's, um, <clears throat> you know, it, it, this is why we're here. This is why we're doing what we're doing. We got to get the message out. Um, what are we at? We're at two minutes. Yeah, we're at, we're just about at an hour. So I think we'll wrap this up. Do you have anything, Scott, that you want to share with? Uh, yeah, I, I will say, you know, on behalf of uh, Granite Mountain Behavioral Health and uh, Recover Strong, um, you know, I am here local uh, for any coalition um, helping professional criminal defense attorney that needs an education in problem gambling. Uh, as well as substance use disorder and uh, Recover Strong and what that does. We're an alternative treatment program. We, uh, you know, really embody ourselves with the mind, body, and spirit. Um, and so if you're looking for that additional um, um, treatment program that the courts may be receptive to or to keep someone uh, safe that has been relapsing or you just, you know, you believe in exercise, uh, and uh, it's something that um, you feel would be useful for your loved one, please, you know, you can get in touch with me. Um, you know, take advantage of the gambling programs uh, or that uh, I can offer you. Uh, even if it's to come speak about, you know, risky uh, behaviors and activities uh, in coalitions. So I think it's got to start at home. And I think 
as great as Massachusetts is with state-driven systems, uh, w without question, uh, the Bureau of Substance Abuse Services uh, does a great job. But it starts at home in some situations and it ends at home. So the more we can get family still number one intervention, number one. And if we can get families educated, whether they come to my program or not, that's not the point. The point is how can we give families more of the tools and the understandings, the things that they're in control of. Right. Right. You, you know, hey, you want to try working out at a local gym? Good. Yeah. Do it. Do it. Right. right? Do it. It doesn't, you know, so it's, um, you know, that type of thing. And so uh, with, with my services, it's not, you're getting my knowledge first. Uh, and then if they, if folks want to participate in the program, great. And if they don't, and you, we just want general discussion anytime. Oh, that's excellent. And you know what? We'll get um, Scott's contact information um, up onto the rock bottom to recovery page. We'll also get it up on the Hobart Cares. You can message me. Um, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Uh, but we'll get the, all that information up there. As Scott was saying, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, resources out there. There's a lot of um, um, programs that we're trying to get up and rolling. Hobart Cares Coalition is uh, one of those um, coalitions that we meet the first Tuesday um, in the Holbrook Town Hall from 7 to 9 p.m. That's the first Tuesday of every month Holbrook Cares meets. Uh, we also have a drop-in center. Um, that might be a great place for you guys to come up, Scott, and set up a resource table. Um, and that is really recovery so resources, and that's at the Brookville Baptist Church, which is also here in Holbrook, and it's right up the street. And um, we meet the, um, the second Monday of every month, um, 6 to 8 p.m., and we're actually in the hall downstairs of the, the Brookville uh, Baptist Church, but that's the Hope Drop-in Center. And, uh, again, just another place to educate yourself and get connected into resources, whether you're a family member or you're struggling. Um, I know the Holbert Cares Facebook page. We're trying to update the uh, bed list, uh, the detox bed list every day. Um, um, one of our members, Debbie, uh, usually stays on top of that. We also have this, the Rock Bottom to Recovery podcast, um, which um, usually we're doing now. A, we're going to try to do every Wednesday um, between 4.15, 4.30 to 5.30. Um, we're going to have different people in like Scott to come in and talk about what they do um, and talk about all those roads to recovery and... I think that's pretty much it. Oh, uh, you know what? I did have something else. Tonight, where is that? Um, at 6 o'clock, we're going to be heading up to the Holbrook, um, Holbrook um, School. And I think it's entrance 12. I thought I had that paperwork here. <clears throat> I know I printed it up. Let me see. Um, Officer Mike Eschner is going to be talking about substance use disorder to the parents. Here we go. I know I had it. 6 6 to 8 p.m. tonight, uh, March 28th, Holbrook Middle High School um, Auditorium. Enter through door 12. Uh, this program is sponsored by the Holbrook De Police Department in collaboration with the Holbrook Public Schools, Holbrook Cares, and the Holbrook Public Access, which is where we're at um, filming this. But um, it's just an opportunity for parents to get some information and help with their children um, through the outreach officer, Mike Eschner. Um, and the program is called DOPE. Drug-Oriented Parental Education. Uh, I'm going to be up there. Um, Hobart Care is going to be up there. And uh, we're going to just talk very briefly about um, 
you know, uh, some of the issues that are going on in the schools um, today. And uh, we hope that everybody can come up because it's very important. Like you said, it starts with family. And if family is educated, then you can you know what to look for and you know how to address it early. So we had back in December, we closed out, Scott, uh, Dr. Ruth Pote. And, you know, Dr. Ruth always stresses uh, delay, delay, delay. Um, if you can delay... Um, um, alcohol, um, marijuana, drugs, anything before the uh, brain fully develops, which is right around the age of 24, you have a better chance of um, a very high percentage of not li- um, coming into a life of addiction. So, um, but so if you're if you're not doing anything, come up, check us out, listen to us, message us, find us. We're easy to track down. I'm going to put Scott's information on the page again. And uh, thank you, Scott, so much for coming in and talking. You, Bill. Love Appreciate to have you the back. Um, yeah, we'd love to, um, like the, uh, if you can get us connected in, you know, even like to love to talk more about the, um, exercise. I'm a, I'm a big, I love exercise. I'm doing a tough mutter in September. Have you ever done one of those? No, but, um, I, I have friends that actually did the extreme uh, oh, championships. Yeah. That's one, like, is it the 24 hour one or something? It's a whole nother Mike Myers, uh, from Halloween. Type of <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun. It's crazy. You get muddy, you get wet and, uh, you know, and, and, and actually that, that is somewhat of an addiction itself, but, well, keep me, um, keep me posted. We're, we're looking to, uh, you know, uh, maybe co-sponsor and get behind other like-minded organizations that we can get our word out, uh, and, um, talk about the, uh, the benefits of exercise. Excellent. Let's do it so, then. Uh, All right, guys, thank you for tuning in. We appreciate it. Share us, let people know what we're doing, what we're trying to do. And, uh, Take care, be safe, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.